Research data indicates an increasingly significant percentage of all elective aortic aneurysm repairs are endovascular procedures. How are new tools for endovascular repair improving our ability to provide minimally invasive options to our patients? And how common are secondary re-interventions following endovascular repair? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Marin, Professor and Chair of Surgery at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and founder of Mount Sinai Hospital's Endovascular Surgery Program. Welcome, Dr. Marin. Thank you for having me. We are discussing new tools for endovascular repair of aortic aneurysms. Dr. Marin, tell us a bit about your background and how did you get started in endovascular surgery? Well, my background has been in the field of surgery. I trained in general surgery and then in vascular surgery here in New York. And very early in my career, a patient came to my office with a large abdominal aortic aneurysm, but he was much too sick to survive or be able to sustain conventional open surgery. This led to an investigation of alternatives and the introduction to Dr. Juan Perotti, an Argentinian surgeon who had a new idea of how to fix aortic aneurysms. And where did you go from there? Well, I engaged Dr. Perotti in a conversation about my patient and about some of his research in the field of endovascular repair. And he suggested that the procedures he was developing allowed the repair of an aneurysm without general anesthesia and without the typical dissection required of the abdomen in order to repair the aneurysm. With his technique, a new lining was inserted into the aorta through the area where the aneurysm existed and was affixed to the aorta above the aneurysm and below the aneurysm, functionally excluding it from the circulation. And how did you follow in this way? This led to an invitation to Dr. Prody to join me here in New York, which he accepted to my and my patient's good fortune, and together with him, I performed the first aortic aneurysm repair in the United States. Well, how did you have the supplies necessary to do this? In this early procedure, Dr. Perotti provided the supplies and the materials necessary to fabricate the graft for its repair. When this was completed, I learned from Dr. Perotti and his staff on how these devices function and work, and then set out myself developing similar devices with more broad potential applications. Were these FDA approved at that time? At the time, there were no devices in the world that were commercially produced, and certainly none that had gone through FDA screening and FDA clinical trials. Then how were you allowed to place them in a patient? In order to use them, we did preclinical testing of the devices, which I built by hand and sterilized. And after preclinical testing, we applied to the FDA for permission to use them in a very small segment of patients who had large, serious aortic aneurysms, but were too sick because of other medical problems to be able to sustain conventional surgery. Now, moving rapidly to the present day, what percent of aneurysms are performed by endovascular repair? At the present time, close to 60% or perhaps even a little bit more in the United States are done with endovascular devices. And do you expect this number to continue to increase? Clearly, as devices improve and as skill level improves, 
I suspect that this number will increase, particularly as we develop systems that allow us to place the device ever closer to the branch arteries coming off the middle portion of the aorta. Well, why isn't it 80, 90 percent? Largely because some patients have aneurysms that encroach upon the renal arteries above and thereby do not give us a suitable implantation site with traditional devices. Some recent devices have been developed that allow us to place them even closer, including the recently approved Medtronic's talent device, which has a transrenal attachment system that allows you to place the device across the renal arteries and fix to a healthy segment above, but not impact on the circulation to those vessels. The second reason is that some patients have severely diseased arteries in the pelvis, namely the iliac arteries, and when these arteries are diseased, it is impossible or difficult to pass the device through them to get them into the aortic position. We're now developing new devices and procedures to allow us to pass these diseased arteries, but it certainly limits the application and has done so for a number of years. And what's the most common reason for failure? The most common reason for endovascular graft repair failure is when the proximal aortic neck at the renal arteries is angulated and short. When this anatomic subtype occurs, the device may seat in the correct position, but because of the bending or twisting of the aorta at that location, which is not terribly uncommon, the device won't seal properly, permitting continued perfusion of the aneurysm sac around the attachment site of the endograft. And then what do you do? When that occurs, there are a number of auxiliary procedures we can do, including placing a second graft in at a different angle, using specialized balloons to dilate the device more tightly against the aortic wall. But in some instances, all these maneuvers are futile and require conversion to open surgery in order to affect a permanent and durable repair. If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Michael Marin, Professor and Chair of Surgery at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and founder of Mount Sinai Hospital's Endovascular Surgery Program. We are discussing new tools for endovascular repair of aortic aneurysms. Dr. Marin, what happens when you have to re-intervene on a patient who has already had an endovascular repair? Is this very difficult? The operations that are required to modify existing grafts vary significantly depending on the severity of the problem. In some instances, it may take nothing more than an inflation of a balloon to seal the graft properly to the aortic wall. In other situations, plaque can develop at the terminus or the end of the graft, narrowing the circulation to one of the legs. And when this occurs, it can be treated with balloon angioplasty and stenting. The biggest problems come when an endovascular option no longer exists to fix problems associated with these repairs. And in that situation, we're certainly still glad that we have the skills and capacity to convert to open therapy, which can be definitive and life-saving. What about thoracic aneurysms? Thoracic aneurysms have also become a great area for endovascular repair. And the development of new devices for the treatment of thoracic aortic aneurysms continues to expand. One of the things about thoracic aneurysms that make them so attractive is if they occur in the middle segment of the thoracic aorta, namely the descending thoracic aorta, they're ideally suited for straight or tubular-shaped grafts, 
which are relatively easy to manufacture and to deploy. The bigger challenges come when the aneurysms encroach on the arch of the aorta close to the arch vessels or extend distally to the superior mesenteric and celiac arteries, thereby eliminating a suitable proximal and distal landing zone for the endovascular aortic graft. And what about thoracic dissections? Could this be utilized in that as well? Well, this is an area of great investigation right now since many patients have relatively stable aortic dissections that are questionable as to what would be the most effective way of managing these problems. There have been several experimental studies to look at dissections, but at the present time, the jury is still out as to whether or not this is an effective treatment. When these patients have these endovascular grafts, do they have to be heparinized continuously and then subsequently anticoagulated? No, because the grafts are large diameter and the flow rates are so high inside of the aorta, the need for anticoagulation after endovascular repair is not present. What we do in most instances is make sure the patient remains on aspirin, but this is more for cardiac reasons than for the endovascular graft procedure. Do these grafts ever migrate or erode? Erosion is something that we do not see. But migration, if the fixation zone proximally is inadequate, is something that is recognized. And the more we study failures, the more we recognize that they can be predicted before we do the primary procedure. If we know we have a large, very short neck, which is very angulated, it's likely that we can predict that the risk of migration or the device slipping out of position will be enhanced. One of the things we're doing now to try to reduce that risk is carefully selecting our patients, but also looking toward devices in the future that contain barbs or hooks that will give us greater seal at the site of fixation. Now, you made these devices originally. Who makes them now, and and where do you get them, and are they different sizes? At the current time, there are a number of vendors who produce endovascular grafts. They include the Medtronics Corporation, the W.L. Gore Corporation, the Cook Corporation, just to name a few. These devices are produced in a variety of different sizes. As the sizes change, depending on the patient's anatomic needs, a specific device can be and will be selected to properly fit the patient's individual aorta. Unlike other procedures, the device can't sort of fit or kind of fit. It's essential for it to be precisely chosen for the right aortic size or the procedure has risk of failure. And how durable are these? You've been doing these for a number of years. What's the longest follow-up you've had, and have you had any problems in terms of durability? In the beginning, durability was a big challenge. Many of the grafts over time would develop fenestrations in the prosthesis material or even fractures in the metallic components that formed the skeleton of the device. Sometimes these were observations that didn't have clinical sequelae but still were concerning. We now have figured out the forces that are exerted upon many of these devices and have redesigned them so that they can sustain the fierce environment associated with the aorta and last for the entire lifetime of a patient. So at the present time, durability has become less of a problem, and we don't see many patients returning with difficult or problematic issues associated with graft structure. I have patients now in excess of 10 years after endovascular grafting who are still doing very well. And 10 to 15 years from now, when our medical students are learning about aneurysms, what are they going to be learning about? 
I think they'll be learning a tremendous amount about the genetics of aortic aneurysm disease. We've only scratched the surface of this, and we believe that there's significant genetic subtypes of aortic aneurysms that extend within individual families. So our ability to screen for aortic aneurysms in large families, detect them early, treat them early, and certainly detect them before the risk of rupture will be a big part of the standard practice of medicine. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Marin. We've been discussing new tools for endovascular repair of aortic aneurysms. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.